missions or the history of the church, you have a whole semester of time to go through that. Uh, and we are going to cover about 2,000 years worth of history in just two short sessions. So it's, we're going to be drinking from a fire hose tonight and trying to communicate things. But if you're like me, growing up, history for myself was a lot about uh, boring dates and dead people, I'm afraid. And that was kind of my perspective. I don't know why somebody just gave a shout-out for that, but okay. <laughs> We're off to a good start if I'm getting a shout-out just for the boring, uh, boring dates and dead people. So. Um, but I was a child growing up in the 80s. Anybody grow up in the, in the 80s, in that realm, a few? Maybe you are familiar with... We're going to need the PowerPoint to go up there. Hello. The PowerPoint, my friend. But if you're like me, growing up in the 80s, I hope it's going here, you probably are familiar with this guy, of all things, the greatest biblical historian of the 80s, the Indiana Jones, right? He's really famous, fought Nazis, rode in tanks, had a really cool whip, and so this was my impression of what history was all about, and who wouldn't want to be that guy? But what I really want to start off with is... Uh, a short story, the thing that I recently read, a book called Spearhead. Actually was listening to it each day I was coming down to Naples. I was driving from Sarasota coming down and listening to it. And it's about basically a, the, a tank driver by the name of Clarence Smoyer and his crew, and he fought during World War II. So they landed in France three uh, weeks after D-Day, and the centerpiece of their story is a fight that they had at the, a German city called Cologne in March 1945, very, really close to the end of the war. And the Germans were fighting to the death, and so Smoyer's tank actually faced off gun to gun in a, right outside a cathedral there. And Smoyer's tank obviously won that confrontation, and that was the end of that particular battle, but that wasn't the end of their story. An army cameraman actually filmed that entire action, and the scenes would appear in different newsreels around the United States. So when Smoyer's relatives would go to the cinema and watch those newsreels, they were shocked to see their son, uh, Clarence Smoyer, there resting with his crew after the battle. He's actually the, the, the middle person without the tank helmet on. And what I appreciate about the book's author was not that he only focused on that battle or the crew, but he also zoomed out and figured and showed how Clarence's crew was connected to this 3rd Army Division of Easy Company, which obviously fought in the greater uh, European war there. Not only this, but he also incorporated short stories of people back home that was affected by him, as well as the enemy itself. So some of you are probably thinking uh, this story might actually be more interesting than the history of missions in some respects, right? But here's my point. By the end of the book, I felt personally that I had a better understanding of that period of history. I felt more connected to the people of that time, and I understood how their storyline affected me living today, living in freedom. So I hope tonight that as we talk about the history of missions, which is really the history of the church, I hope you have a better understanding of different periods of history. I hope you feel more connected to the people who were basically our spiritual heritage, and in some ways understand how your personal gospel story is actually linked to the historical gospel proclamation, which is obviously the ultimate greater storyline. So we already started seeing a glimpse of this in the very first week uh, that we did the journey course together. 
when Sean Cooper was talking, tracing about God's heart through the nations, through all of Scripture. And he really started off with Genesis chapter 12, 1 and 3. And the end of that was, in all families of the earth shall be blessed. That's including us here sitting tonight. And then how Paul masterfully connects the dots of that spiritual heritage as he talks about the Gentiles with salvation history in Galatians chapter 3, verse 14. So that in Christ Jesus, the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles so that we might receive the promised spirit through faith. And then last week, Rob Clark, appreciate you, Rob Clark, you did a great job, walked us through this two-volume set of Luke and Acts showing us how Jesus Christ was the greatest prophet of all time and fulfilled each and every one of his promises. And he did that. His disciples received power, check. They were witnesses in Jerusalem, check. In Judea and Samaria, check. And to the whole world at that point in time, and I know we said kind of a check, but check on that as well. And the gospel went forth, churches were planted in those regions, and they became beacons of light that would share the gospel message and participate in the setting apart of workers for gospel proclamation throughout the earth. And do you remember who Luke and Acts was written to? Theophilus. Theophilus. His name in Greek actually means the one who loves God. Do you love God tonight? Oh, (laughs) That was better, better than the dead people once. <laughs> Congratulations, that was good. Yes, those books are actually written to us because we also love God and we want to understand his purpose in this world. And if you remember what, what Luke's premise was when he wrote Theophilus, that you would have certainty concerning the things that have been taught. So here is my main point tonight, is this, for the history of missions. It's his story. It's God's story of missions. It is not ours. We are just participants in it. And I don't know if you can read that up there, but it says history is linked to you, and you would not be glorifying God today without the spiritual heritage of churches sending their members to proclaim the gospel to our forebears. So this is the main thought, that history of missions is the history of the church and how God empowered it to spread the gospel to the world in every time period. So his story, God's story, is connected to you. And that's very personal. And you would not be sitting here without the spiritual lineages, lineage of those who were sent. So to give you an idea of where I'm going tonight, for 2,000 years in a very short amount of time, we're going to cover a few... So I'm going backwards here. We're going to cover really... Four of these five points here. First is the mission in the early church, which is from about 100 A.D. to 750 A.D. Then we're going to talk about mission in the medieval church, 750 to 1500, mission in the early modern church, 1500 to 1800, and then we're going to close it out with the century of mission, 1800 to 1900. Obviously, there's one more section on there, which is the globalization of missions. We won't be hitting that tonight, but that's something that we're actually very familiar with. So let's start with this. This is very sensitive remote. So history of missions from the early church. So the main component is, is actually the Roman Empire, the Senatus Populisque Romanus. So that is the main like symbols, SPQR, which represents the Roman Empire. And one of the key components of that is actually the, the government, where the Senate came together to make decisions. But if chaos ensued, there was actually 
a law that dem democracy would be suspended and they would elect one guy to have absolute power. And then, in theory, he would give up that power when the crisis was over. And this worked a couple times. Uh, this gentleman here is the Roman general Cincinnatus. He was a retired general, worked as a farmer. The Senate came to him asking for help, and he came out of retirement, rallied Rome, defeated the enemy, and 15 days later, after assuming a dictatorship, he actually resigned and went back to the plow. Very fascinating. Some historians actually call George Washington the American version of Cincinnatus. This is actually a statue in the Richmond, Virginia, uh, in the capital of Richmond, Virginia, basically portraying General Washington as Cincinnatus. And there's even in the House of Representatives different Roman symbols uh, that is like, symbolize like power and authority behind even the lectern where they do the State of the Union address. They don't really show on CNN the like, In God We Trust above that. They usually kind of pan lower and just show those types of things. So, um, so it's kind of interesting. But obviously, that was not always the case. Um, Julius Caesar actually came to power in 49 BC and he absolutely loved power and became a, the emperor and he began a section of one, uh, a, a succession of one nasty guy after another. Like some, uh, some Caesars were poisoned, other stabs, other, other, others died in battle. But at the height of the Roman Empire, that is actually when Jesus Christ came on the scene. He came, lived on this earth, proclaimed a message of repentance, he died on the cross for humanity's sins, was raised, and then gave his followers a clear directive to communicate that message around the world before his ascension. So it wasn't a great commission, but a recommission of sorts, and that's what we kind of talked about last week. Because as we saw in Lesson 1, God's heart for the nations has, was never an afterthought, and it was still God's primary purpose. So here we have Christ in a painting ascending, ascending to heaven, saying, see you later, guys. Obviously, he didn't say that. He had a little, little humor in the history part, just so people stay engaged, right? But obviously, after the ascension, that we wait, they waited for Pentecost. And Pentecost, people came from all over the, over the world to Jerusalem to worship. And they heard that same message in their own language, and they went back to their respective places. And then we have the, the stoning of Stephen, which really forced people out that were believers in Christ in different parts of the world. And this map is actually some of those places that we kind of went. Some went to, there's one, Thomas uh, supposedly went to India, other people into the Roman Empire. Even Joseph of Arimathea, it's, uh, its legend says that he went all the way up to Great Britain, or the, not the United Kingdom, but Britain at that time. So how is this possible? How could the gospel spread so fast? And it was really because of the Pax Romana, the Peace of Rome, which really was from 27 BC to around 180 AD. And what, how did they have this peace? What were the things that caused that to happen? Well, first, um, they were uh, masters of war. They had helmets that were really cool with like things that like the helmets would go over the ears so the people could hear the, the command of the generals and things like that. They had plate mail, they had shields, they had battle formations. They even had a short sword called a gladius, uh, which was really quick. If you, can, if you can imagine, other armies would have huge broad swords and it'd be hard for people to kind of like defend themselves, but they had a very short sword so they could use it really quick. Um, it really brings that verse in Hebrews to light. 
For the Word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of the soul and of the spirit, of the joints and of marrow, and discerning the things and intentions of the heart. They had battle engineering. They had to pay taxes. They had roads that were built. And we all know the phrase, all roads lead to Rome. That's right. And they measured this road uh, by the width. You had four soldiers could stand side by side. And they'd measure a Roman mile by how far a single soldier could carry an eight-pound pack. There was actually a law at that time that, that said that if there was a 12-year-old person or older, that they would be required to carry the soldier's gear for an entire mile if they got asked. Which brings this verse to light, specifically that highlighted part. If anyone forces you to go one mile, go with him two miles. One mile fulfilled an obligation, but two miles changed the nature of the relationship. So not only that, when you conquer people, you take their stuff. <laughs> you learn from it, and you make your own. This is a, a Greek-looking statue that you can actually see in Rome. Uh, there's a creepy little baby uh, there as well. I found out last night that it, his name is actually it's Cupid, uh, which I was surprised about. It still looks creepy to me a little bit. Uh, so... And obviously, they did aqueducts. They have the Parthenon, which is where uh, there was the temple of the gods. And basically, the front is looking very Greek, and then it's circular. And then when you go outside, you supposedly can see any place in that entire room from any position, and you could basically go and worship your god that was listed there or that was displayed there. And then, obviously, the Colosseum, which was one of the most famous things that we have. And so how did they do all that? How did they get the money for all that? Well, that happened from the destruction of Rome, or excuse me, the destruction of Jerusalem in 70 AD. So there was a breaking at the fortress of Antonia. Word gets back to the emperor, and they sent General Titus, and six legions were sent to Jerusalem and basically sacked and burned it to the ground. And the fires were so hot, they say, that the gold from the temple actually melted into the foundation, and people would pry up all the, all the stones in order to get at it which obviously Christ talked about in Matthew chapter 24, verse 1 and 2, when he basically said that there would not be one stone upon another to be thrown down. You can still go to Rome today and see the Arch of Titus that kind of portrays that and celebrates him. And there's even on there uh, a Jewish menorah that's kind of on the display on the, on the Arch of Titus there. Now, obviously, with all of this happening, there's a lot of persecution with Christians. The most famous emperor that we know is Emperor Nero, where he basically blamed the Christians for setting fire in 64 AD on, on Rome. And Rome burned for six days and seven nights, and there was almost three-quarters of the city that was basically destroyed. So the fact that they were um, uh, targeting the Christians and trying to persecute them and, and kill them and, or torture them, those things, it is believed that actually Peter and Paul may have died as a result of that persecution. But it wasn't just him. It wasn't just, just Nero. It was also other emperors after that. The first Roman emperor from Africa enacted a law forbidding conversion to Judaism and Christianity. In 249, the government decreed that all church leaders to offer sacrifices to Roman deities and to lead their congregations to do the same. In 253, 260, Emperor Valerian banned Christian worship assemblies and funerals and confiscated church property and even purged the Roman Senate of anybody that was a Christian. The historian Tertullian of Carthage said this, They think the Christians caused every public disaster 
of every affliction with which the people are visited. If the Tiber rises as high as the city walls, if the Nile does not send its waters up over the fields, if the heavens gain no rain, if there is an earthquake, if there's a famine or pestilence, straight away the cry is away with the Christians to the lions. And even amid such immense persecution, the gospel exploded. And here is three reasons why I think that's the case. First, they loved strangers. They loved the common individual. They shared the gospel message with them. Women in Roman culture really had no value at all, but when you were a Christian, there was great value now. And Paul even says that people in Caesar's household were getting saved, the Praetorian Guard, all walks of life, businessmen, priests, uh, poor people. It was for everybody, that gospel message. There's actually this really interesting uh, graffiti in uh, Rome. It's called the Alexamenos Graffito. It's dated around 200 AD. It's basically depicting a Roman soldier worshiping his God. And the inscription says, Alexamenos worships his God. And it's really indicating apparently that it's meant to mock him as a Christian because there's an image of a, of a person on a crucifix. So if you can imagine this, in the midst of all that persecution, here's some physical evidence that Christianity was was vibrant within those contexts. Not only that, Christians would help out during a plague uh, called the Antonian Plague, around 185 uh, AD. It started, and millions of people died at that time. And here's what the emperor said of, of the Christians at that time. Atheism, or Christianity, has been specially advanced through the loving service rendered to strangers and through their care for the burial of the dead, it is a scandal that there is not a single Jew who is a beggar and that the godless Galileans care not only for their own poor, but for ours as well. That's a f- great testimony of, of believers at that time. But obviously that's not all. There was uh, the edicts of toleration that basically granted Christianity the status that they could worship in freedom. And then probably the most famous one of all is Constantine in 312. Constantine, uh, just before a battle at Milvian Bridge, uh, before that battle, he says that he saw a cross of light in the sky above the sun with the words in Greek that are generally translated in this sign, conquer. And that night, Constantine had a dream in which Christ told him he should use the sign of the cross against his enemies, and he was so impressed that he had the Christian symbol marked on the soldier's shields, and when the Milvian Bridge battle gave him over an overwhelming victory, he attributed it to the God of the Christians. And then after that, there was the Edicts of Milan, which basically proclaimed the permanently established religious toleration for Christianity in the Roman Empire. And eventually, later, Christianity would become an official religion of Rome. Now, that may sound like a great idea to have one religion be the official religion of, of a particular empire, right? But that was probably the worst idea for the growth of the church. Now all the political ideas of Rome connected to Christian ideas. The enemies of Rome became enemies of Jesus, and people became Christian in name only. There was one good thing that happened during that time, and that was the Council of Nicaea. The, the, I'm not going to, this type is really, really small. But it's basically a time when 300 different bishops came together and they were discussing the importance uh, of the Trinity uh, doctrine, the doctrine of the Trinity. 
And this was really important. So they had people from all over the world participating into this. There's actually, and if you actually read the Nicene Creed today, right now, I think all of us here would agree on those same principles. And that was written back in 325 AD. Really fascinating to see that the things that we believe in now are the same things that they believed in then. There's actually a funny story uh, during this time. There was actually two camps uh, at this Nicene Creed Council, at the council. There was those that did not believe in the Trinity of Christ, and then there was those, or the, the Trinity of God, and there's those that did. And so, at some point in time, the Bishop of Berna, who was all there, the, the debate was getting so heated that he came down and actually slapped a guy in the face because he was not believing in the Trinity. It was really fascinating. And his name is actually St. Nicholas. So somebody sent me this. I can't read it from here, but I thought it was funny that he knows when you are sleeping, he knows when you're awake, he knows if you're denied the divinity of Christ. So St. Nicholas, St. Nicholas, at least at that time, a few people got it over here. <laughs> so it's kind of, it was kind of a funny story that I thought I'd share with you. But obviously, Rome didn't last forever. Around 410 AD, they were invaded by the Visigoths. Uh, and if you remember the call to reach all nations, right? Here's an example of some of those nations during that time. Way up in Great Britain, or at the time, there's the Pecs. We have all these other ones. They're here with the, uh, the Huns and the Estonians and the Goths, the Visigoths. All these different places around this world that people were starting to having to be spread out into these regions beyond the Roman Empire. For example, in Gaul and Spain, there was Irenaeus, born 115 AD to 200 AD, he survived. And he was a bishop in Lyons, and he was initially set apart to be a, a minister to the congregation of Greek-speaking immigrants in that city. But he made a point to learn the local Gaelic dialect in order to begin to preach to the pagan villages around Lyons. And though it's difficult to confirm whether Paul went to Spain, uh, Tertullian and uh, that historian referred to Spanish churches in the third century writings, and even at a council in the fourth century, it lists some sort of 36 different Spanish churches within that region. Egypt is another famous place. Maybe you've heard of the Coptic Church. Anybody have heard of the Coptic Church? Yeah. So the Coptic Church is based on the teachings of Mark, who brought Christianity to Egypt during the reign of Emperor Nero in the first century. And Christianity spread throughout Egypt within that half century. And it is clear because there's New Testament writings found in the middle of Egypt that date around 200 AD. And a fragment of the Gospel of John was actually written in the Coptic language, which was found in Upper Egypt and can be dated to the first half of the second century. It's interesting when you think about that region of the world because there's actually, uh, Isaiah talks about it in, ch in chapter 19, verse 19, where it says, In that day there will be an altar to the Lord in the midst of the land of Egypt and a pillar to the Lord at its border. Very fascinating. And then North Africa. Christianity flourished there. What makes this significant is that we almost know nothing of its origins, and there's no really early record of missionaries or church planters that actually went there, only the emergence of a vibrant church in the late 2nd and early 3rd century. It's, it's just amazing to see that the gospel is going forth. And not just that, but the importance of translation. So in, in, Western, uh, in the Western Roman Empire, a bishop actually asked a gentleman by the name of Jerome 
to revise the Latin Gospels, and he spent over 20 years developing a fresh translation of the Old and New Testaments together, and his work is known as the Latin Vulgate. What's really interesting is that he actually took the original Hebrew instead of the Greek Septuagint and used that to translate into a fresh translation. While that seems very logical to us today to use the original language to translate, for early Christians that was actually quite controversial. But probably one of the most famous people that we all might know is Patrick, St. Patrick. So Patrick was born in the late 4th century, uh, many speculate around 385, and he was born into a Celtic Britons or a Romanized family of Christians there. He was, his father was a deacon and his grandfather a priest, and he was kidnapped at the age of 16. Anybody 16 years old here? Nobody. Well, around 16 years old then. Uh, was and he was taken back to the island where he served as a slave for six years. And while in bondage in Ireland, God opened his eyes to the gospel and he became a believer. And so as a captive, he came to understand the Irish uh, Celtic people, their language and their culture. And when he eventually escaped from slavery in his early 20s, he was a changed man and now he had a, a heart to serve the Lord. And so he studied actually vocational, vocational ministry and he led a church there in Britain for nearly 20 years. And you'd think that would be it. But at age 48, which obviously goes way past the life expectancy of somebody in the 5th century, Patrick had a dream which proved to be his own call. An Irish accent uh, pleaded, We appeal to you, holy servant boy, to come and walk among us, having known the language and customs of his captivity and having long strategized about how the gospel might come to the Irish. He now answered the call to return to the place and his, uh, pain, and his pain with a message of joy. So a slave returned to his captors to give this news of freedom to them. And there's a really interesting book called The Celtic Way of Evangelism, uh, which really talks about his strategy and his methods. It was very quite controversial because the prevailing effort was to Romanize people first, to civilize them. But for him, he wanted them, the Irish people, to really understand through their own culture, what the gospel was and have a, have a movement start within them. So he didn't try to colonize them. He tried to actually evangelize them. Not only that, but he didn't fly solo. When I first started thinking about Patrick, I always thought he was an, the individual person going from place to place to place to place. But he actually had a close-knit team that worked together to go from location to location, speaking the gospel, making disciples before continuing on through there. We have no detailed record of Patrick's ministry teams and strategies, but there are some ancient resources or sources that can piece together a typical approach, which undoubtedly varied from time to time. So about a dozen members, they say, they would approach a tribe's leader, get clearance, set up a camp, and minister and look for people who would be receptive to the, to the gospel. According to tradition, Patrick died in 17, uh, on March 17th, many think around the year 461, but we don't know for certain. While today we know that the celebrations of his day uh, has a very pagan sense to itself, right? But he was quite the amazing individual that spread the gospel. If you're wondering why there's snakes at the bottom of his feet, uh, 
some people think that he's like he cursed all the snakes off the off the continent of Ireland. I don't know if that's true. Uh, I've never been there, so I can't see if, know if there's snakes or not. Another gentleman is really interesting is Boniface. Uh, Boniface actually cut down the oak of Thor in Gizmir. It was this really large sized oak, and he cut a notch in it. Basically, this was the 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 prevailing group of the time their place that they worshipped. So when he took a first superficial cut, what says is that the oak's vast bulk, sh- shaken by a mighty blast of wind from above, crashed to the ground and basically broke this thing into four separate parts, almost like equal parts. And the people of that day thought it was so extraordinary, they started to, to bless the Lord with that. It was an amazing kind of confrontation to their belief system. Now a lot has been said about this Western expansion, like I'm talking from Jerusalem going out into, into Europe. But we don't hear much about it going east, do we? At least in historical accounts. But here's a few. One, back to this map again, is probably the most famous one is Thomas, uh, who allegedly went to India in the first century. We say alleged because there's not really a lot of proof uh, text that show his work in there. But there's actually an interesting account of when the Portuguese reached India in 1500, they encountered a community of 100,000 Christians in southern India who traced their spiritual lineage back to Thomas. Not just that, this is going to be hard to see there, but there's Armenia, which is right up, you see up here on the right, left-hand side, there's Georgia, and then Armenia is right there. So the king of Armenia actually embraced Christianity during that early uh, the early uh, history there, was baptized and declared Christianity the new national religion. What's interesting is that this happened a decade before Constantine's reported conversion. And Christianity was actually official religion, uh, of, uh, was declared the official religion, and the Armenian New Testament started in 410 A.D. And the Old Testament was completed in 414 A.D. Not only this, but you can see the Silk Road going, that red line going east. So the Church of the East, missionary monks spread the gospel through Central Asia in the 7th and 8th centuries, and they established over 150 different monasteries, started new churches in major cities on the Silk Road. And the Church of the East really represented the most vital expression of Christianity um, when there was the rise of Islam. So what do we learn from this first part of that history? What are the key points? Well, one is that a lot of these laborers were were anonymous. We don't know much about them, but they were passionate about getting the gospel message out into the world. Missionaries were basically set apart for this unique work of the gospel. Much of the historical document or the history books that I've read talk about how the bishops were set apart, meaning that a church basically set them apart for the particular work of the ministry in this part of the region. So it's really linked to a local church. Obviously, suffering. They endured a lot of suffering to see that happen. There was the desire to communicate and learn the local language of the people in order for them to understand that same message and the importance of translating the scriptures so that people could have the word of God in their language. So now we move on to the Crusades, or to the medieval history. My goal is to get to the Crusades and then stop. So remember, Crusades are around... 1000 AD here. So during the middle age of the church, 750 to 1500, 
um, we have several things that are kind of key. We need to remember that the Dark Ages happened from 500 AD to around 1000 AD, decline of the Roman Empire, a lot of encounters with Goths, Vikings, Muslims, many uh, regarded as uncivilized, and the church itself declined theologically, extra-biblical doctrines like purgatory, challenges of corruption where different ministers would use their position to gain wealth and so forth. So this really made missions kind of confusing at this time. But despite these challenges, the church engaged in missions in many forms. Some of the key components are bishops and monks and the rise of the Mindan, I always mispronounce this, that monastic order there that you can see up there. So it was a time that people would adopt the lifestyle of being poor and this as they continued to spread the gospel out. And their major thing was that the church and the state were united together. So there's a strong influence on one another. But the main component during this time, I think, is the area of Scandinavia. So by 1730, much of Western Europe had met the Vikings, whether they wanted to or not, actually. That would be my heritage. So they met my ancestors. Um, and much of the European Christian literature at the time actually depicts the Vikings as very barbaric. I don't look very barbaric right now, but maybe if I did back then, I would have like a long beard and like horns coming out of my helmet or something like that. I don't know. So obviously there was much fear of proclaiming the gospel to them, but there was one individual that took it upon himself to really go for it. It was Ansgar of Corbert. He was actually from the country of France, and he was a missionary bishop in these northern regions. So in 826, a group of monks in him actually agreed to accompany the exiled Danish king to go back to Denmark. And things kind of appeared open at the time, but they received a lot of backlash from local pagans. There's a lot of people on his team that died, and they eventually had to return all the way back to Corvée, France. But that didn't stop him. In 830, the king of Sweden actually sent ambassadors to the king of France and wanted Christian teachers to become and sent to his people. So who went? Ansgar did. His ship was attacked by pirates. He was robbed of nearly everything, including all the Bibles and liturgical books. Eventually, they made it to Stockholm, or what they think is modern Stockholm, and he had a very interesting strategy. He actually would connect with the uh, Christian slaves that were taken by the Vikings, and he would try to work with them to minister to the people, and he saw some success. But he also had another strategy, which he would take Danish and Slav slaves, train them as well, and send them out on on the mission. So 845, Vikings actually stormed the place where he had his training center. They destroyed the church, destroyed the Bibles and all the books, and basically had an entire effort in, in that region stopped. And he died in 865, but saw very, very little fruit. So Christianity most clearly, obviously, took, uh, took hold of that region in the 10th to 11th centuries. Another interesting story is this guy. His name is Olaf, and I'm not even going to try to pronounce that last name. He has at least nine consonants there and like three vowels. Um, he is the king of Norway from the 10th century. He actually sent an emissary to Iceland and wanted them to accept accept Christianity, but we really coerced them through battle to do that. But Iceland was interesting because they had a parliamentary system at the time, the year 1000, and they had a two-party system. Some of them wanted to be governed by Christian principles, 
and the other party wanted to be governed by pagan principles. And so they hired this gentleman. His name is Thorger. He was actually a pagan law speaker, and he was tasked to make that decision of what they should, uh, what avenue they should do. And they actually decided to follow the Christian principles. And this is what it said, that all the Icelandic people uh, could become Christian or they could accept Christianity, but if the pagans wanted to basically still practice their religion, they could do that in freedom. It's very interesting to come to that decision very early on. This is him here, the, the pagan lawyer, actually. He's carrying what he, would be his wooden god there. And it, there's legend says that he threw it into, this, into the waterfall there in Iceland. And actually, you can still see that today. It's called the, the waterfall of the gods. The last place to really talk about is, is Moravia. It's the home of the Slavic people. So the prince of Moravia actually asked the Byzantine Empire to send Christian teachers, and so they sent two gentlemen to, to Moravia. The names are Cyril and Methodius. They were monks living at Mount Olympus, and they were chosen for their intellectual abilities, their, their diplomatic prowess, and mission experience, but they were also fluent in the Slavic language. So the first step was actually to develop an alphabet in order to translate the scripture. That's how it's depicted there uh, with them holding that up. And they would teach others uh, that language and script so that they could be indigenous pastors. Cyril, which I believe is uh, Cyril, who is the one on the the hooded guy. I don't know why in all the different things he's depicted like that. I'd be scary to meet him on a street somewhere. Um, but he actually died at the age of 42. But Methodius continued that efforts and that Christian efforts into Poland, Croatia, and Russia at the time. Actually, the Russian alphabet is called Cyrillic, after Cyril. And one last guy, Timothy of Baghdad. I never really realized that there was a church in Baghdad in 762 AD. It was a little over a decade after the Caliphate was established. And the church was eager to establish a presence in this region so they could keep an eye on, on all the Muslim leaders and what they were doing. But Timothy was really interesting because he secured permission from the head guy to send missionaries to former Christian lands and into Central Asia to see how things were going. And he set apart bishops for new churches in Asia, in Tibet and China. And he modeled, his model for engaging Muslims continues to be very instructive even today. He did not live in isolation. Rather, he and the Church of the East Christians lived among and conducted business with their Muslim counterparts instead of attacking Islam and its prophet. Now, Muslim, uh, Muslims did have a lot of objections, obviously with the Trinity of God, but he used the illustration and analogy of the sun, one body, shape, and heat to defend the trinity of God. Very fascinating individual. And obviously, at that point in time, we enter a very dark period, which is the Crusades. So the Crusades uh, was a really very, very dark, dark time in, at least in Christian history, or in the history of the church. Christians, Muslims, and Jews actually lived very peaceably since the Muslims took control of Jerusalem in 637. But in the 11th uh, century, Christian kings united the people in single-minded obsession to take control of the Holy Land. 
And in 1095, Pope Urban II actually preached a sermon declaring that it was God's will that the church take up arms and reclaim it. Now, Muslims embrace jihad sometimes an acceptable means for expanding the Muslim empire. The early church never had this type of viewpoint, but at the height of Christendom, the church actually allowed its political aims of the state to overtake its mission and vision and embrace their own form of, uh, unfortunately, Christian jihad. Now, this was a, a dark time, but was there anything that God was doing to continue to bring people to himself, to continue to communicate the gospel message. One of those individuals is actually uh, Francis of Assisi. He's the one, not a sissy, a sissy, just making sure that everybody's clear on that. Uh, he was the one that actually founded this uh, engaged in cross-cultural work, particularly to preach the gospel to Muslims during that time, which is very, especially with the Crusades, it's very kind of counterculture at the time. So he dreamed of doing this, and he actually finally realized that effort when he became a chaplain of the armies going to Egypt as a chaplain. And he crossed enemy lines and actually met with the Egyptian sultan. You'd think at first that he was kind of desiring martyrdom, but he actually came and preached a message of peace. And what's really fascinating about his encounter that says in history is that he's received safe passage to the camp and at the same time, at the conclusion of those discussions, he received safe passage back. So though Francis was quite committed to uh, have this type of conversation, it wasn't an interfaith dialogue. He presented a Trinitarian God, an incarnate Christ, crucified, buried, risen, and a Holy Spirit who made the virgin birth of Christ possible. And finally, he called his hearers to repent and believe this message. He was really a very amazing individual. On the flip side of that, we have this gentleman, Raymond Lull. Uh, If you see something coming out of his mouth like this, he's not smoking. That's actually their version of cartoon bubbles. So if they would, in that era, it's kind of interesting. But he spent nine years learning Arabic. He established different missionary training centers for the Muslim world and convince people in Europe, actually, in the European universities to have Arabic as a primary language and have Oriental studies as part of the curriculum. His idea of spreading the gospel was quite different. He took three short trips to Algeria and Tunisia. He would invite different Muslim leaders to a public debate, and he did not, uh, did not hesitate to criticize Muhammad in his presentation. His first two trips, as you can imagine, ended abruptly and he went home, but on his third trip, at the age of 83, he was actually stoned to death. Now, while Christians and Muslims were fighting, actually, the Mongolian Empire conquered much of China and Central Asia. And the first noted effort that was made, actually, to reach this part of the world was a Franciscan monk named Caprini. It was not a very fruitful trip, uh, but he took careful notes and conducted his own ethnographic survey of the, of the Mongols, which helped other missionaries later on down the road. And he discovered that there were already believers in some of those areas of the world, and they worshiped freely. And then after him, there was another individual that got sent, and they still noticed those same things. Another person that went to this area of the world, his name is uh, William Rubric. Rubric. Uh, 1253 he went. He continued that mission to the Christians that were dispersed. 
And he also engaged in this ethnographic and linguistic studies in order to understand the Mongolian culture better. He actually wrote an account of his travels, and his masterpiece actually is one of the greatest medieval geographical uh, pieces of literature of that time, and it rivals Marco Polo. His first 10 chapters that he wrote was all just general observation on Mongolian culture and customs. So very important in order to understand the people that you're communicating the gospel message to. He was even invited to a debate uh, among the Mongols at a court with somebody from different, uh, a different faith, Christian faith, Buddhist faith, Muslim faith, in order to determine which one was correct. Of course, we don't know the outcome of that, but we do know that by 1300 uh, AD, the Mongols embraced Islam, and by 1362, much of the, of much of the Chinese had already conquered the Mongols. They took, retook Peking, and the last church of the East bishops in that region were basically put to death. And that's kind of where we come through that. This is actually some of the, those regions that he went through. The capital at that time was Karakoram, where the Mongolian Empire, uh, the Mongolian Empire's like, capital was. So you can imagine all that, that uh, traveling that he had to do. So between 1500 and 1800, uh, global mission really remained largely a... Oh, I forgot this slide. I apologize. It's not in my notes. But what are the key points, again, here that we wanted for this era? One is, again, anonymous laborers, people, common individuals, taking up that call to see the message preach, preached. That, once again, that the missionaries were linked to a local church. It's the importance of suffering, the importance of learning that local language, and the translation of the scriptures. So when we come after the medieval uh, age, we come into this early modern church, 1500 to 1800. So in this time, global mission really still remained a Roman Catholic uh, endeavor. Despite uh, preaching and theological clarification uh, for the Protestant reformers, they were, really did not translate into, into any viable global, global effort in that 16th century. And although Protestant mission efforts flickered in North America in the 17th century, there's no visible uh, movement until 1727 when the Moravians emerged, and we'll talk a little bit about them later. But during this time, missions of some sort or the history of the church is really connected to the age of discovery, uh, the expansion of Spain and Portugal across the globe, and some historians call it the Great European Migration, and their motives were political, economic, and spiritual. And this global expansion was a new way for nations to, uh, for Western nations to kind of extend this crusade-like tendencies and gain an upper hand. But during those ages of 16th and 17th centuries, Christian mission was, remained very, very close to this imperial expansion. So there's really no structures in place for Protestants to go. But one of the most famous uh, orders at the time were the Jesuits, founded by Ignatius Loyola, founded the Jesuits in 1534. He actually entered royal court when he was 15 years old. His leg was crushed by a cannonball in battle in 1521. And during a year of recovery, he actually read about things about the Bible and Christian material, and he became a believer. And he decided to imitate uh, the same principles as Francis of Assisi. He actually studied theology in Paris for seven years, and then he formed the Jesuits. And here's the Jesuits' mission statement. The end of the society is to devote itself to God's grace, 
not only to salvation and perfection of the members' own souls, but also the same grace to labor strenuously in giving aid towards salvation and perfection of the souls of their neighbors. By the time he died, the Jesuits included over a thousand members with new communities springing up in Spain, Portugal, Italy, France, Germany, Brazil, and India. And they were actually the first ones to use the term mission or missions. So that's their vocabulary that they adopted when they talked about the work that they were involved with, the preaching the gospel among all the nations. Also, Francis Xavier was part of the Jesuits. He was arguably the most famous Roman Catholic missionary in church history. He went to India in 1542, and he focused his ministry on uh, working with a Tamil-speaking group of people. And he, his efforts were very commendable, uh, and he labored very, very long and very hard. But the one thing that he might not have done that great is to establish indigenous leaders within the churches there. Building on his foundation, there was actually another Jesuit that convinced, was also convinced to reach out to that area of the world. And in order not to be offensive, he actually eliminated everything that was like things like eating meat and wearing leather shoes so that there would be less hindrance to people understanding the gospel message. He even mastered the languages of Tamil and Sanskrit languages of the time that were used. Here's some of his uh, travels, Francis Xavier, uh, that he, Francis Xavier, you can see all those different places that he traveled into, obviously, India, and then he made it into uh, Malaysia at the time, all the way up to Japan. So Jesuits, uh, off in Japan specifically, they encourage that same type of adaptation to learn local customs, dress like the locals, and learn that language. And there was significant responses to the gospel, but almost by 1630, there was no signs of Christianity remained in Japan when the persecution of the church began. We talked about the Vietnam or the Vietnamese translation of the scriptures, yes? That was Alexander de Rhodes. He arrived in Vietnam in 1623, and he also used innovative strategies of his day. He excelled at learning language and developed a Latin-based alphabet for translating the Bible into Vietnamese. He also encountered hardships, expelled from the country four times, and he, in the end, he received a death sentence in 1645 that was later reduced to forced exile actually been to Vietnam, and what was interesting to me is that there was many, many roads still with his name on the street uh, corner. Some, some say they, he had a lot of roads, the roads, Alexander the roads, named after him. That was, somebody told me that last night and thought it, was, thought it was funny, but I guess not. So obviously there's a lot of thing, other things that were going on in Latin America and Africa, and if we tried to cover them all, it would be hard to do that. So we're going to jump into the Protestant Reformation, which we know happened on October 31st, 1517 was really the start when Martin Luther called for the debate concerning the church's uh, teaching on penance. So he nailed his 95 thesis to the door and he asserted that the justification happened by faith alone. He argued that every believer possess, should possess and read and understand the scriptures. And on scriptural authority, he argued that scripture alone represented the final authority for faith and practice. And he demonstrated that last conviction because he spent the entire winter of 1521 to 1522 while in hiding, 
translating the New Testament into colloquial German. And thanks to the printing press, the distribution of that was made much easier. Now, what about our English Bibles that we have here today? That would be William Tyndale spearheaded that, that endeavor. So Tyndale actually went to London in 523 to speak permission to a bishop called Tunstall to translate the Bible into English. But he was rebuffed by him. So instead, Tyndale accepted help from a London merchant, and he went to Germany in 1524, and he never returned to England again. In 1525, he and his secretary moved to Cologne, Germany. If you remember the, the book Spearhead, that's actually where they had that battle. Cologne, Germany is where Tyndale went, and he began printing the New Testament. But that was illegal, and he was betrayed, and he fled up the Rhine, up the Rhine River to a place called Worms, and he started printing again. And the first completed printed New Testament in English appeared in February 1526. And copies began to arrive in England about a month later. And what was interesting is that that gentleman, Tunstall, that tried to stop it, he began collecting all these cap copies together, anything that he could find, and he would burn them in a, a big thing in front of the uh, St. Paul's Cross in London. But they still circulated. People still had them. Tunstall tried to arrange to buy all the, all the Bibles before they even left the continent. And the funny thing is that Tyndale would use that money then to print more Bibles and do more translation. It's just really rather humorous. So by the end of it all, uh, there was a point in time when he, where, Tyn, where Tyndale was sailing for Hamburg to print Deuteronomy. He was shipwrecked and he lost everything, both money, his copies, and time. And he started all over again, completing the Pentateuch between Easter and December, and he printed it in January 1530, and copies were back in England that summer. Revisions, and, uh, revisions were completed shortly after that. Tyndale's writings were popular in England, and Henry VIII, fearing Tyndale's influence, sent an ambassador to persuade him to come back to England, and in a secret meeting at night, uh, he actually agreed that he would come and return to England if the king would permit the print of an English Bible. But in 1535... Uh, Henry Phillips actually betrayed him, and he was uh, betrayed Tyndale, and he was in prison in Brussels for 16 months on a charge of heresy. And even Thomas Cromwell, the most powerful man next to the King of England at that time, moved to get him released, but, but Phillips, uh, the Phillips in Belgium, they would not anything to do it. So on the morning of, uh, of October 6, 1953, he was taken to a place of execu execution, tied to the stake, strangled and burned, and his last words reportedly were, O Lord, open the king of England's eyes. So his dying request seemed to find its fulfillment actually two years later with Henry's authorization of the great Bible for the Church of England, which was largely Tyndale's work. Notably, in 1611, 54 independent scholars who created the King James Version, much of the ones that, that I grew up with, and they drew significantly from Tyndale, as well as the translators that descended from his. One estimates that the New Testament in King James Version is 83% Tyndale's, and the Old Testament is actually 76% Tyndale's. I found this very interesting. In the preface of the 1515 Danish Scriptures, it was written, Nobody ought to think that the Gospels are more sacred in one tongue than in another. They are as good as Danish or in German 
as they are in Latin. And we owe a lot of the, a lot of the work of, from, of William Tyndale and his work on the English Bible. Uh, and we are, are the recipients, recipients of his great motivation to see it printed in a language that we would understand. So in the 16th century, Protestant Reformation did not once again produce a viable global missionary movement that was parceled to the work of the Jesuits. Why is that? Well, one, Catholic countries possessed ships, so transportation was much easier. Wars of religion and conflicts across Europe limited land travel, and Protestants didn't have any structures in place to send. And reformers at the time were really striving to renew the church itself. But there was one individual that's really fascinating, uh, Count Zinzendorf, or Nicholas Ludwig von Zinzendorf. Excuse me. If any of you are going to have kids in the next few years, I would vote for one of these names. Excuse me. So the young Count Zinzendorf had a profound spiritual experience while visiting Dusseldorf, he says. He observed this painting by an Italian artist, the painting shows the whipped Christ with crown of thorns, uh, and the painting has an inscription in Latin on the bottom of the canvas. It says, This I have done for thee, now what wilt thou do for me? And he was so moved by the painting, and his deep awareness of the grace of Christ led him to, dis, uh, to dedicate his life to the service of the Savior. That actual painting that you're seeing, um, that actual painting that you see, Excuse me, I'm going backwards here. This painting here. You can actually view, view it in a museum in Munich today. So Nicholas, uh, <laughs> Count Nicholas, or Zinzendorf, he opened his estate to Protestant uh, refugees, and they formed their own Christian community. And what's interesting about this formation over the next five years that in 1727, the community started a round-the-clock prayer watch that lasted unbroken for 100 years. There were about 300 persons in that community at the beginning, and various ones covenanted to pray for one of the 24 hours. And in that day, or on that day, and in 1792, 65 years later after that, the lamp of prayer was still burning, and that little community had sent out 300 missionaries to the unreached peoples of the West Indies, Greenland, Lapland, Turkey, and North America. And they were utterly and radically dedicated to making Jesus known. The two first Moravian missionaries actually set sail on October 8th, 1732, uh, from, the, uh, from Copenhagen for the West Indies. On board were John Leonard Dober, uh, a potter, and David Nietzscheman, a carpenter. Their purpose was to follow Jesus' command, as the Father has sent me, so I send you. Jesus, in incarn Jesus incarnating his life into humanity had left all. And Paul said, For though I am free from all men, I have made myself a slave to all, so that I may win more. I have become all things to all men, so that I may by all means save some. And the only way to reach the slaves in the West Indies was to become incarcerated themselves. These two men set sail with the objective of selling themselves into slavery to reach the slaves if they must. It is said that they called out to their loved ones on the shore 
May the lamb that was slain receive the reward of his suffering. And what they called out to the shore from the boat, or what they called out to the shore from the boat, would become the rallying rallying cry of all future Moravians and the glory of God. Taken from Revelations 5-9, as they pointed their mission to the worthiness and the glory of God. And upon arriving at the shores of their destinations, the Moravians would unload their few belongings and burn the ships, It was a refusal to look back to the country from which they went out. But as it is, they desire a better country that is a heavenly one. And the Moravians' passion for missions was great because their passion for God was great. So spiritual awakening or revival always precede missionary movement. Which brings us to the key points once again. Anonymous labors, Missions connected to a local church, the willingness to suffer, learning the local language and culture, and ultimately translating the scripture into language. Which brings us to the final part of our history thing tonight, the his story, God's story within a century of mission. Now, this is probably one of the most uh, well-known parts of history that we might be familiar with here tonight. So why was it so um, prevalent during this time? Well, colonialism continued. Uh, excuse me, colonialism continued. There's industrialization. Current thoughts, like the things of Charles Darwin, was prevalent, and global religions actually declined. So evangelical revival from 1800 to 1830, which is called the Second Great Awakening in America, church attendance went from developments happened in Norway to 40% of the population. Outside of America, renewal developments happened in Norway, Germany, Switzerland, France, and Britain. And in many cases, these revivals translated into new vision and commitment for global mission sending. The one that we're all probably all familiar with is the first gentleman on this side is William Carey. And he lived from 1761 to 1834. He became convinced that global mission ought to be the central focus of the church. He encountered resistance, though, from his leadership, who believed that the nations would be brought into the kingdom by another move of the Spirit in the last days. Carey remained unmoved, though. He adopted as his foundational missional text Matthew 28, 18 through 20, make disciples of all nations. And in conjunction with this, he, in 1792, he actually published a book entitled An Inquiry into the Obligations of Christians to Use Means for the Conversion of the Heathens. Not a very catchy title, probably in our day, but that was the title back then. So Carey argued that the church ought to function as God's mean for mission in every generation. And he advocated, advocated this on a regular basis At a gathering of Baptist ministers in Nottingham in 1792, Carey is famously saying, challenging his colleagues, expect great things from God, attempt great things for God. And in that same year, he formed the Baptist Missionary Society. From the founding of that society in 1792 until 1960, 80% of Protestant missionaries came from what we know as English-speaking world. Now, obviously, with the globalization right now, we are no longer the dominant ones that are the sending ones of the world. In 1795, the London Missionary Society was formed. 1799, the Anglican Church Missionary Society was formed. 
And there's many more, like the Berlin Missionary Society in Germany, Swiss National Mission, the American Baptist Mission Board, SBC, Southern Baptist Convention. All were driven by what some would call this voluntary principle, missionary candidates putting aside career ambitions in public service, business, and established ministry and committed themselves to proclaiming the gospel around the world. There's actually this interesting uh, hymn you're probably all familiar with, Holy, Holy, Holy. Everybody's probably sung that at some point in time. That was actually written by Reginald Herber, and he went to actually to Calcutta, and he wrote that hymn trying to convey the holiness of the triune God. Henry Martin, who you're seeing here in the middle, I believe, played an important role in the Anglican mission to India as well as Persia and the Arab world. He translated uh, the scripture into Hindi, Persian, and Arabic before his untimely death of 31. We're all familiar with the founding of the China Inland Mission in 1865 of Hudson Taylor. And that <laughs> probably spent another three nights just more than that, Rob, Rob more than that, <laughs> just talking about that area of the world if we wanted to. And there's Adoniram Judson, who you're seeing on the far uh, right here. He is actually the first traditional American missionary sent from North America. He went to Burma, and I've read his biography, and he has an incredible story. But probably one of the most famous early Protestant missionaries that you've never heard of is David Brainerd. Has anybody heard of David Brainerd? Well, not every, a few people, maybe about 25% of the audience here. David Brainerd was actually born in 1718 in Connecticut. He was converted at the age of 21, and during his third year at Yale, when he was preparing for pastoral ministry, uh, someone actually overheard Brainerd overzealously say to some of his professors that some of them had no more grace than a chair. I guess that was an insult of the day. So the Great Awaken Awakening had already created tension between the students and the seemingly less spiritual faculty and staff, and so Brainerd was actually expelled from Yale at the time, even though he was one of the top of his class. And though he tried again and again over the next several years to make things right, Yale never readmitted him because God had another plan for Brainerd. God meant to drive him into the wilderness that he might suffer for his sake and have an incalculable influence on, his, on the history of missions. And the only reason we know anything about him it's because Jonathan Edward Brainerd wrote a book called uh, The Diary and Journal of David Brainerd. And what do we learn from him? And I'm borrowing the next little bit from John Piper's book, 21 Servants of Sovereign Grace. First, he had a broken body. Brainerd struggled with almost constant sickness. He had to drop out of college for some weeks because he had begun to cough up blood in 1740. He wrote in his journal, rode several hours in the rain through the howling wilderness, although I was disordered in body, that little or nothing but blood came up from me. Now and again, he would write something like, in the afternoon, my pain increased, increased, uh, increased exceedingly and was obliged to betake myself to bed. Was sometimes almost bereaved of the exercise of my reason by the extremity of pain. He dealt with a lot physically. He also had kind of a mind that tended towards depression. And the marvel is that he occurred. He was tormented again and again 
with the most desperate discouragement. And the marvel is that he survived and kept going at all. He often called his depression a kind of death. There are at least 22 places in his diary where he longed for death as a freedom from his misery. For example, February 3rd, 1745, he wrote, My soul remembered the wormwood and the gall, which is almost like he's saying hell, of last, uh, of Friday last, and I was greatly afraid that I should be obliged again to drink the cup of trembling, which is more inconceivable, conceivably more bitter than death and made me long for the grave more, unspeakable more than hid treasures. And it's simply amazing how often Brainerd pressed on with the practical necessities of the work in the face of the waves of such discouragement. And this, no doubt, endeared him to many missionaries of the future who knew firsthand the kind of pain that he had to endure. Not only this, he was a lonely soul. He tells of having three, the profane talk of two strangers one night in April of 1743. Oh, I longed for some dear Christian uh, knew my distress. A month later, he says, Much, most of the talk I hear is either Highland Scotch or Indian. I have no fellow Christian to whom I might uh, talk to or open myself up to and to lay open my spiritual sorrows and with whom I might take sweet counsel and conversation about heavenly things and join in social prayer. Brainerd was alone in his ministry to the end. During the last 19 weeks of his life, Jonathan Edwards' uh, sister who was 17 year old, or excuse me, not sister, daughter, uh, who was 17 years old at the time, was his nurse. And many speculate that they were, had some sort of love between them. But in the wilderness and in ministry, he was alone and could pour out his soul only to God. And God bore him and kept him going. Brainerd's response, we could go on to describe his struggles, external hardships, his bleak outlook on nature, his trouble to love the people he was trying to reach out to, his temptations to leave the field. But we turn now to how he responded in the midst of those struggles. And what we're struck with immediately is that he pressed on. One of the main reasons Brainerd's life has such powerful effects on people is that in spite of all his struggles, he never gave up his faith or his ministry. He was consumed with a passion to finish the race and honor his master and spread the kingdom. It was this unswerving allegiance to the cause of Christ that makes the bleakness of his life glow with glory. He died of tuberculosis on October 9, 1747, at the age of 29. It's inspiring to think that one small pebble dropped in the sea of history can produce waves of grace that break on distant shores hundreds of years later and thousands of miles away. Robert Glover, in his book, The Progress of World Missions, says that it was Brainerd's holy life that influenced Henry Martin to become a missionary, was a prime factor in William Carey's inspiration. Carey, in turn, influenced Adoniram Judson, and we could trace the spiritual lineage from step to step. He says, Huss, Wycliffe, Zinzendorf, the West, and Ed Whitfield, Brainerd, Edwards, Carey, Judson, and ever onward in the true succession of spiritual grace and power in worldwide ministry.
But the most lasting and significant effect of Brainerd's ministry is the same as the most lasting and significant effect of every pastor's ministry or every missionary's ministry. There are a few Indians at the time, perhaps several hundred, who now for and for eternity owe their everlasting life to the direct love and ministry of Dame Brainerd. Who can describe the value of one soul transferred from the kingdom of darkness and from the weeping and gnashing of teeth to the kingdom of God's dear son? Whether we live 29 years like David Brainerd did or 99 years, would not any hardships be worth the saving of one person? So in conclusion, what is missions history telling us? It says that you and I and the churches that we are a part of are linked to this historical message. You and I would not be glorifying God today without that spiritual heritage of the churches sending their members to proclaim the gospel to our forebears. What's interesting for me is as I was finishing that book, Spearhead, the one that I mentioned at the beginning, the author told one last story that I found actually pretty profound from 1946 of someone else who was at the battle in Cologne in a tank, and his name was Gustav. So he was a German POW working in a transition camp in France, the final stop for soldiers before they uh, went on to their destination's home, and he was on KP duty. He's washing dishes, serving food to GIs, and he liked, liked the work very much, and he was glad that he was alive. But on one fateful night, his commander approached him and the other PO happened before their ear that they could join the chow line. And this had never happened before, and he wondered if this was actually permissible or was it a joke. But as he watched other POWs follow suit, he joined in, and he was served heaps of turkey and mashed potatoes and other treats, and he sat at a table with other GIs and POWs, and most people didn't take notice because they were watching the man on stage instead. And then the MC came on the microphone and prompted the audience to sing along to the next song. It, he said the title in German so the POWs would know the tune. It was Silent Night. And as they sang, English voices, German voices together, Gustav actually finally felt for the first time that the war was over. For us, dear friends here, we will be singing a song too, but it won't be Silent Night. Instead, it will be Holy, 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 and over the world. Or in German, but it will be in languages from all over the world. And we'll be sitting at the marriage feast of the Lamb with our spiritual forebears like Carrie, Brainerd, Patrick, Anskar, and many more unsung, unknown, and yet faithful servants for our Heavenly Father. Then we too will know that the war between dark forces is over but that eternity has begun and that his story, God's story, is complete.